Hello and welcome to episode number 176 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. In this episode, we're speaking to Galip Dalai, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and non-resident senior fellow at the Middle East Council on Global Affairs, for which he recently published the paper Turkey's Middle East Reset, a precursor for re-escalation, question mark. The piece looks in depth at Turkey's recent bid to mend fences with a range of its previously bitter rivals in the region, including the UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Israel, dialing down its revisionist zeal in a push to de-isolate itself and return to something like the pre-Arab Spring status quo. It looks at the push and pull factors behind this initiative, the challenges it faces and some of the possible exceptions, all of which we discuss in our very rich conversation. But before we get started, remember you can find our entire archive of episodes going right back to 2015 over at turkeybooktalk.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. You can support the podcast by becoming a Turkey Book Talk member via Patreon. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member gets you numerous extras, including an exclusive discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Every one of the hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury is available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. Members get a special code to use at the online checkout, and that deal is valid for all physical books, pre-orders and ebooks. If you'd rather read these interviews than listen to them, then good news because Turkey Book Talk members receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of over 200 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, I also send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve that bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Galip Dalai. Turkish officials began sending out signals about Ankara's regional policy revision towards the end of 2020 and it gained momentum throughout 2021 and 2022. It was a sharp shift, a U-turn in fact. President Erdogan went from effectively accusing powers like the UAE of being behind Turkey's 2016 coup attempt to hosting Abu Dhabi's crown prince in Ankara on a state visit in November 2021. So I started by asking Galip Dalai whether he was surprised initially to see this rapprochement process start. I think the question of when Turkey's Middle Eastern reset took place is very much related, interlinked with the question of why. Why are we seeing a reset in Turkey's Middle Eastern policy? I think part of the why is very much related to the broader trend of de-escalation across the Middle East. 
So some of the factors that inform Turkey's policy of de-escalation or reset in the Middle East are very much the same factors that drives the broader Middle Eastern reset or de-escalation. I think one of the key dates was the departure of Trump from the office and the arrival of the Biden administration in 2020 elections because the Trump has been a factor of escalation in the Middle East by supporting one side decidedly against the, another one. So the fact that Trump supported, tried to like create an Arab NATO initiatives against Iran's, against other regional actors, that was a factor of escalation. The uh, arrival of Biden in this respect led many countries to recalibrate their policies. So the arrival of Biden is one factor. But there is also a broader U.S. question here which is the U.S. actions in the region has become a bit unpredictable. So it's not only that the U.S. is downsizing its regional footprint. For many regional actors, what is even more problematic is that the U.S. is unpredictable and unreliable at the same time. That's more of a problem for many regional actors than U.S. merely downsizing its regional policy. And in this regard, the Biden is not actually departing from the Trump era tradition. It's very much still in line with a policy that didn't start with Trump. It actually started with Obama, the downsizing U.S. regional security commitments. And other factors, I think, that drove the broader regional de-escalation was the idea that the region is entering a post-Arab Spring era. One factor, for instance, was the political Islam. The role of the political Islam, one of the major fault lines between Turkey and between the countries like UAE, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, was the Turkish support for the political Islamic actors and then the Arab Spring. But if the region is entering a post-Arab Spring in which the role of the political Islamic actors is dramatically decreasing, that also means the political fault lines that previously used to be very active between Turkey and these countries are no longer as active there. So one of the major friction points, namely the role of the Pakistan and then the process of Arab Spring, is no longer as salient or as important in Turkey's relation with these countries. And another factor I think that was important was the role of the economy. So the economic case for Turkey is obvious, which basically drives many of Turkey's international actions because the economic crisis is very much affecting the Turkish population, but it's also very much undermining the government. But the economy is also important for many regional countries. Let's not forget like almost all Gulf countries has declared economic vision for 2030, 35, 40. So many um, Many Gulf countries are right now coming up with different vision for their economies because over the last decade, we have spoken too much about the ideology, politics and geopolitics in the region and very little about, about the economy. And now what you see is actually the economy is gaining more and more importance in regional politics. Many countries try to align their economic needs with their foreign policy priorities. So they try to like create better alignments between their economic needs and their foreign policy priorities. Because again, over the last decade, there was a decoupling between many regional countries' economic needs and their foreign policy activism. And that was quite costly. And I think in the new period, we will be hearing more about the economy. And also you see some form of the economic nationalism is on the rise, even in countries like Saudi Arabia. So you have actually two contrasting and contradictory trends across the region, which is on the one hand, you have the need for regional economic cooperation. On the other hand, you see the trends of economic nationalism.
And I think all these factors was very much affecting the broader regional reset. But there were also Turkey-specific cases as well. So the domestically, the other factors that was also driving the Turkey-specific case is one of them, the, the economic crisis in Turkey. Because as you can see, Turkey's rapprochement with the Gulf Arab states has a very strong economic narrative. With the UAE, it was very economic-focused. With the Saudi Arabia, it's very economic-focused. And actually, right now, they don't talk much about their geopolitical disagreements because despite the de-escalation in their relationship, neither side is changing their positions. I mean, just look at the Libya. In Libya, the reason that we are talking about some form of de-escalation that we used to talk, because the Turkey and the UAE try to refrain from escalation, but they haven't changed their position yet. They haven't changed their policies yet. So here, the rapprochement between Turkey and Arab Gulf states is very much economy focused. You see that Turkey tried to actually uh, sign swap deals between their central banks and with Qatar. It did with the UAE, the $5 billion swap. It hopes that it will do a similar one with Saudi Arabia because the currency crisis in Turkey is pushing it. And then finally, right now, you see that in Turkey's narrative towards Syria, Turkey's openness to find a new way towards Syria even though right now the changes in Turkey-Syria relation is more in discourse than in real policies. But nevertheless, there is a domestic foreign policy reason for this as well. It's the question of the refugees. Before elections in 2023, the government would want to show to the public that it is sending part of the Syrians back to Syria. It will try to like create this image in order to address popular discontent with the refugee issue. So this is one of the factors besides that Russia is also pushing pushing Turkey to engage with the Syrian regimes. And effectively, what Russia offers on Turkey-Syria dispute is an Adana Plus agreement, which means that Turkey will have to go through the Damascus in order to address its problems in Syria. Yeah, I want to come on to Syria later in the conversation. I wonder if you could also just reflect more broadly, really, on the fact that this shift has been so sharp in the last couple of years. And the fact that the rhetoric beforehand was so strong, you know, there was this really lofty rhetoric from, you know, Turkish officials, for example, the UAE was, there was very harsh language that you saw from officials, you saw it in the media as well, accusations of the UAE being this kind of eternal enemy of Turkey mm-hmm. and being behind the, the coup attempt in 2016. And the same goes for Israel. Really harsh language coming on. So I just wonder, you know, the shift from that has been a huge U-turn. So I just wonder, you know, where's that energy going to go? Because you do wonder where that kind of ideological energy that really motivated uh, a lot of officials and a lot of the, it was the kind of fuel for a lot of um, foreign policy moves. You know, where's that energy going to go in the coming de-escalation process? Well, I think that the distrust between the countries is still there. It's not the change of policy completely. And we're not talking about trust-based relationship. This is like a very much interest-based relationship between Turkey and the Arab Gulf states. The distrust in the relationship is still there. Secondly, the ideological battle that was fought between Turkey and the UAE was very much a product of Arab Spring because the UAE basically has emerged as one of the champions of the regional authoritarianism. And the Turkey back then has emerged as one of the champions of the Arab Springs, supporting the Arab Spring process and also most important of the political Islamic actors. And if you look at the UAE in recent years, the UAE tried to kind of fashion a narrative of Arab nationalism because the Arab nationalism 
was was fascist in a way that would have opposed Turkey and Iran by portraying both countries as non-Arab countries meddling in the affairs of Arab countries as a counterweight to political Islam, but also as a counterweight to Arab Spring as a whole. So the uh, the ideology of Arab nationalism, in a sense, the UAE tried to like fashion the ideology of Arab nationalism as the ideology of Arab authoritarianism. But in recent years, Turkey is not the Turkey that was championing the Arab Spring. Turkey is no longer the Turkey that was seen as inspiration for many countries, primarily for its domestic political evaluation, taking like more democratic steps during the first decade of 2000s. This is a Turkey that is more authoritarian. This is a Turkey that is not more Islamist. It is more nationalist. This is a Turkey that is more, let's say, pragmatic compared to a decade ago. So in this regard, actually, not only the region is entering a post-Arab Spring era in which the weight of the political and ideological battle of the Arab Spring is less salient, but Turkey itself is not what it used to be, both in political and ideological terms. And I think this is one of the glue that brings them together. So this is a more nationalist Turkey. This is a more authoritarian one. And this is no longer the Turkey that supports the ideals of the Arab Spring. So that makes it easier for the engagement. And coming back to this question of the economy as a motivating factor, uh, it seems to me a strong point. And it's also a very rational calculation to make. The, the prospect of economic deals is going to be an attractive one for the government. But it also strikes me that that's a very kind of rational calculation. So I just wonder, you know, how reliable is that? Because when we think about sort of domestic economic policy or monetary policy, at least on interest rates, it doesn't seem very rational at all. So well, is there a contrast there between the way Turkey started to behave internationally, where it seems to you know, be downplaying these kind of tensions in the interests of economic prosperity and you know, the domestic policy, which doesn't seem, very, doesn't seem similarly rational? Well, I think, I mean, any country wanting their foreign policy serving their in, uh, economic interests would be seen as a rational actor. But the question is what you are willing to do for this is cr- more crucial. So just look at the normalization with Saudi Arabia. One of the prerequisites for this de-escalation, normalization is too strong word. I wouldn't describe it as normalization. But reset, let's say, or de-escalation with Saudi Arabia, one of the requirements was that Turkey will actually close the Kashinchi case and transfer it to Saudi Arabia. So effectively, Turkey had to give up on one of its sovereign rights in order to appeal to the Saudi crown prince. And this is like the dark side of this normalization, because one of the actually the one of the dark side of the broader regional normalization, this is strengthening the regional authoritarianism. I don't see much bright side from this regional normalization because this is once again regional authoritarian reset or regional authoritarian restorations. So anyone that used to support the process of change in the Middle East or that was arguing for a more democratic Middle East, for a Middle East that was paying more attention to the rights and liberties of its citizens, unfortunately, this de-escalation is not going to serve any of these goals. To the contrary, this de-escalation process is going to actually undermine them. But in the case of Turkey, the fact that it had to transfer such a case, close it and transfer it to Saudi Arabia was actually the ugly side of it. 
And rationally, I don't know how actually this is in Turkey's national interest if you have a long-term spectrum, because even despite Turkey doing this, the economic benefit that it reaped from this is not actually significant. Even during the best time, the Turkey-Saudi economic ties were modest. Like, for instance, Turkey's economic ties with UAE was much more important. And actually, the UAE is Turkey's largest trade partner in the Gulf. So the Saudi-Turkish economic ties were even modest. And the Turkey doing all these steps in order to extract some, you know, economic investment from Saudi Arabia, to me, is not a rational step. Because the price that Turkey had to pay, the image damage that Turkey is getting from this is also significant. And also bearing in mind the irrational economic steps domestically, when you bear this in mind, the picture becomes even actually more absurd. Because domestically, the decisions that the governments are taking is very much undermining the Turkish economy. And on foreign policy fronts, right now, the Turkey is very much pursuing a foreign policy, particularly in the Middle East, that will try to bring some economic benefits to the uh, countries. So there is a mismatch between the Turkey's domestic economic policy and its foreign economic policies. Another contrast is Turkey is much more serious when it comes to de-escalation with the Middle East, whereas, you know, the de-escalation with the West is not, you don't see a similarly serious trend there. Now let's turn to this question of Syria, because in the last few weeks, we've seen this issue kind of rise up the agenda pop into everybody's minds and there's a number of pieces being written about it and obviously talking about regional normalization turkey syria relations that's probably the most difficult regional actor for turkey to normalize Mm. with or even de-escalate with given the particular circumstances with regard to turkey's position in syria for over 10 years now but we are we do seem to be seeing moves on that front officials in turkey making particular statements which appear to prepare the ground, you know, talking about cooperation with Damascus against the Kurdish YPG, for example, in the north of the country. So it looks like some kind of diplomatic process between Ankara and Damascus, however difficult, is on the horizon now. How do you reflect on that? Where do you see that potential rapprochement going? Well, I don't see that it will go anywhere anytime soon. I see this more of a change of discourse rather than a policy because I don't think that Assad can deliver what Turkey wants from it. And I don't think that Turkey can do what Assad would want from Turkey. Let's just start with what Turkey might wishes from such a change of discourse. One of them is more cooperation against the Kurdish YPG PYD. Well, that depends on many factors. First and foremost, we don't know whether Assad would be willing to cooperate with Turkey in an anti-YPG, anti-PYD fashion. But secondly, the U.S. is still there. So even if Assad is willing to do so, we don't know to what extent it can do as long as the U.S. is there in the north northeast. Secondly, Turkey hopes that it, it will be able to send back some of the refugees from Turkey to Syria. Well, we don't know whether actually whether the Assad wants them back. Actually, we know that Assad doesn't want them back. I mean, just look at the experience of Lebanon. Assad is not interested not only in refugees in Turkey, but it's not interested in the Syrian refugees in Lebanon or in Jordan or even in Iraqi Kurdistan. So Assad is not interested in the return of the Syrian refugees. Assad is interested in the discourse of the returning of the Syrian refugees because it wants to use this discourse in order to generate discussion on the rebuilding of Syria. So that's what Assad is interested, but not interested in the return of the Syrians. 
The third day, Turkey has to find some things for the Syrian opposition because right now there are more than hundreds of thousands of people with arms, some form of militia, some form of foreign fighters that Turkey has been working with in one way or another. So Turkey cannot just like dump them because that will be quite difficult for Turkey as well. So in this respect, Turkey needs to, you know, get something in return for the Syrian opposition. And I, I don't think that the Assad would give uh, anything to the Syrian opposition anytime soon. And similarly, what Assad would want from Turkey cannot, Turkey cannot uh, meet them as well. Sooner or later, Assad would ask Turkey to withdraw from Syria. And I don't think that Turkey can withdraw from Syria anytime soon. Assad would sooner or later, would ask Turkey to stop its support for the Syrian opposition. Again, I don't think that Turkey can stop its support for the Syrian opposition anytime soon. Sooner or later, Assad would bring the question of Idlib. I don't think that Turkey can give up on Idlib anytime soon. So I don't see much real progress in the toys. I know that Russia is pushing for it because the Russia effectively wants some form of an updated Adana agreement between Syria and Turkey. Because Adana agreements address the question of border security for Turkey, but Adana agreement is clear. The Turkey has to address this issue through Damascus. Turkey has to recognize Damascus and should address it through it, according to Adana, Adana agreement. And this is precisely what Russia is pushing for, an updated Adana agreement in which perhaps, like you know, they will have extra provisions for Turkey's border security or other security concerns. But at the end of the day, any updated Adana agreement, which still means a major withdrawal of Turkey from Syria. And I don't think that any government can engage in any significant withdrawal from Syria without this being seen as a defeat in the public eyes, because a withdrawal can be seen by the public as a setback. So there is a change of discourse. And we might even see that Russia and Turkey might create a parallel process to the Astana process, which would more focus on the triangle of Turkey, Syria and, and Russia uh, without Iran in it. But I don't see this producing any significant outcome anytime soon. But what we might see is more public engagement, engagement between Syria and Turkish officials and probably at the ministerial level as well. Not only at the bureaucratic level, but also at the ministerial level, we might see more engagement of that sort down the road, but I don't still see a major policy change. I wonder if potential sort of anti-US shared interest might come into things here, because I think we're beginning to see this in Turkish officials' statements where they're you know, trying to emphasise this shared interest between Turkey and the Syrian regime in removing the US presidents from Syria, finding, I don't know, some formula to basically team up against the US on the ground saying, you know, we both don't want them there. So, you know, this can be the basis for some kind of de-escalation between Ankara and Damascus. Do you think that anti-US shared interest is enough of a shared understanding to provide that foundation for cooperation at some level? Well, I mean, the Astana is one such an platform. I mean, the Astana came into being as a result of the shared anti, you know, the anti-US sentiment was the glue of Astana. It was the shared discontent of Turkey, Iran and Russia with the US policy that brought them together. And most importantly, it was the fact that the US also, the fact that the Turkey also joined them in their discontent with the US. 
it can bring them together, but it cannot, like, you know, address their disagreements. It cannot resolve the incompatibility of their interests. So it, it has a limit. The anti-U.S. sentiment has a limit when it comes to resolving their disagreements and resolving the incompatibility of their interests. So, yes, this shared discontent can bring them together, but it cannot resolve their issues. Now, two non-Arab states that are also part of this broad regional reset for Turkey are Israel and Armenia. These are two very different cases, obviously, but is rapprochement with Israel and Armenia triggered by similar forces to the rapprochement that we're seeing between Turkey and Arab countries? And also, how sustainable do you think those two processes are going to prove to be? Well, yes and no. There are some similar drivers, but there are also particular drivers. Uh, let's just look at the Armenia. The major issues that led to the breakdown of the relations, Turkish-Armenian relations, now more or less has been resolved after the latest war because the Azerbaijan recovered most of the area around Nagorno-Karabakh and established its sovereignty, uh, its sovereignty there. So the officially, Turkey can say the reason that led to the breakdown of our relations is no longer there. So therefore, we can re-establish the ties and normalize the ties. And there isn't actually any public opposition to it. So the climate is very suitable for a normalization in Turkish-Armenian relation. And I think the question of Zangezor corridor, the corridor question would be quite crucial if Turkey, Armenia and Azerbaijan agree on this, uh, on the opening of this corridor, that could be quite crucial. But nevertheless, the victory of Pashinyan also in the elections after the war is also a good news because that effectively means that the pro-change camp in Armenia, the Armenian society still supports the change and normalization despite the recent wars. And uh, the fact that Azerbaijan recovered these territories, that means the Azerbaijan opposition to a normalization between Turkey and Armenia is no longer as there. And societally and politically in Turkey, the nationalist circle, which previously opposed normalization between Turkey and Armenia, right now is part of the government. I mean, uh, MHP is part of the coalition that is ruling the Turkey. So therefore, there isn't that much opposition coming from there as well. So therefore, it is more positive momentum to be capitalized upon in Turkish-Armenian relationship. In Turkey-Israel, there are several dimensions. One of them is the Eastern Mediterranean dimension, because one of the goals for Turkey is, in recent years, the Turkey felt that a new regional security and energy order that was emerging in Eastern Mediterranean, that was premised on close cooperation between Greece, Cyprus, Israel, Egypt, and then with support of the Arab Gulf states, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and then the U.S. So one of the goals of Turkey's policy in the new period is to drive wedges between Greece, Cyprus, and Turkey's erstwhile regional rivals. Because one of the reasons that all these countries sided with Greece and Cyprus in their dispute with Turkey was because of the nature of the adversarial relations between those countries and Turkey. So one reason for Turkey is, uh, you know, to decouple, to drive a wedges between these countries and Greece and Cyprus. So instead of Turkey, instead of Turkey experiencing the Eastern Mediterranean crisis in the form of Turkey facing a group of countries, Turkey wants this crisis to morph into a bilateral crisis between Turkey and Greece. So it doesn't want to face a block of countries. And that's one of the drivers behind Turkey's normalization with Israel, Egypt, UAE, etc. Because Turkey wants to decouple these countries from Greece and Cyprus in East Mediterranean. 
And secondly, Turkey also looks at Israel through the U.S. prism as well. I think the thinking in Ankara is as follows. Good relation with Israel would have also implication on Turkish-U.S. ties. But thirdly, perhaps the anti-Iran agenda also partially brings these countries together. But we have to be aware of a nuance. Where else Israel and many Arab Gulf states want to engage in a containment policy towards Iran, Turkey doesn't want to engage in a full-fledged containment policy towards Iran. Turkey wants pushback against Iran on certain policy files because a full-fledged containment policy would create more trouble in Turkish-Iranian relationship and that will have very much negative repercussion for Turkey as well. So there is a nuanced differences between Turkey's policy towards Iran and then this country's policy towards Iran. And despite the de-escalation in tensions between Turkey and a number of regional powers, you also argue in the article that turbulence is really on the horizon in relations between Turkey and Iran and relations between Turkey and Greece. So these are two real outliers in this broader de-escalation. So let's just start with Iran. You know, we're seeing a number of pieces appearing in the last couple of years, looking at the long term and suggesting that Turkey and Iran are basically on a collision course in the region. And in those takes, there's almost a sense of inevitability in that, you know, of conflict between the two. So do you agree with that fatalistic assessment? And what are the factors underlying the emergence of greater regional rivalry between Turkey and Iran? Well, I mean, friction in Turkish-Iran relationship doesn't mean a rupture or breakdown in their relationship. So the difference between, let's say, Turkish-Saudi relation and Turkish-Iran relationship, crises in Turkish-Saudi relationship usually end up in breakdown in this relationship. But in Turkish running case, compartmentalization has been always the case and will continue to be the case. So therefore, all this anticipation of frictions or more crisis in Turkish Iran relationship should not lose the sight of bigger picture. That doesn't mean a breakdown in Turkish Iran relationship. Having said this, now we see more area in which the Turkish Iranian competition is taking place is extending from South Caucasus to Iraq, Syria, to Central Asia, to Afghanistan. Therefore, the geographic scope of Turkish-Iranian competition is expanding. And also, you see the frequency of their disputes is also increasing. Just look at the Iraq. Iraq is the most active front right now in Turkish-Iranian disputes, both at the national level, but also at the level of regional Kurdish politics. Turkey and Iran are on the opposing sides. And you see the growing friction, the growing fights between the pro-Iranian Shia militias and Turkey as well. The fact that Turkey used drones against the Shia militias in Iraq, the fact that the Shia militia has attacked Turkish bases many times is significant. And actually for a faction for pro-Iran Shia militias, the anti-Turkey narrative has become quite prevalent. So in the new period, I see more engagement between Turkey and Gulf Arab states and probably in Iraq, which will take place in an anti-Iran fashion. So Iraq can be a front for cooperation between Turkey and several Arab Gulf states, starting with the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And that will uh, have a clear agenda, which is anti-Iran. And therefore, th- this is one of the reasons that Turkey would support more and more bringing Iraq into the Arab fold, because that means undermining the Iranian influence in Iraq. 
So uh, in the new phase, I do anticipate more friction in Turkish-Iranian relationship, more escalation in Turkish-Iranian relationship, but I think the both countries are mature enough to manage it. And similarly, I see more frictions in Turkish-Greek relationship because none of the crisis in their relationship has been resolved. And actually, most of the time is, you know, festering from the Aegean to the Eastern Mediterranean, from the Cyprus issue to the crisis over the maritime boundaries issue. So none of the issue in Greek-Turkish relationship has been resolved. And the both countries has engaged in an undeclared arms race uh, with each other. So in the new period, I do anticipate we will see more escalation on Turkish-Greek relations as well. The Turkish-Greek relationship can be a major flashpoint even before the elections. And it can take, you know, certain forms. It can take in the form of Turkish-Greek disagreements over the armament of certain islands, over the ownership of certain isles, or, you know, the the unresolved nature of the Cyprus question once again can flare up. So any of these items can serve as a flashpoint prior to the election. That was Galip Dalai. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 176. Don't forget, if you enjoy Turkey Book Talk, you can support us by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you that 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. You can also support Turkey Book Talk by rating it or writing a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners. So do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Finally, once again, let me remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've also got a Slack channel now for signed up members who want more, and they've also started publishing high quality original on the ground reporting for their subscribers. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.